as we prepare our own hearts to come to your word, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we, we remember that it is sufficient. It is indeed all-sufficient. It tells us everything that we need to know about you, about ourselves, about salvation, about living in a way that's pleasing to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us with your word today. Feed us. Nourish us. Lord, do not let this only be intellectual knowledge. We pray that the stories that we read about in your word would do more than just give us information. God, we need transformation. We need to become more like Christ. We recognize how far away we are from being like Christ. And we recognize that one of the ordinary means of grace that you have ordained, that you have given us as a good gift from your hand, is the preaching of your word. And so we pray that you would use it to accomplish your work in us. That you would chisel away sections of unbelief and doubt and hesitation to obey. And that you would refine us with your word for the glory of Christ, that we may grow in his likeness. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be finishing chapter 1 today, looking at verses 21 to 28 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. I've been looking forward to doing this study for about two years now. I really love preaching from Old Testament narrative. I think it has a way of of living out before us, showing us in in ways that we can imagine, you know, what it what what's happening here and what the lessons are, what we should uh, see in terms of where Christ is in the Old Testament narrative. And of course, the answer is he's everywhere in the Old Testament. That's one of the blessed things about preaching Old Testament narrative is that you see Christ absolutely everywhere. And so you get a deeper understanding of what he meant when he said, these are written about me. Uh, they are all written about him. He is foreshadowed, and uh, you see types and, and foreshadows of him everywhere in the, New, uh, in the Old Testament. And so I hope that that's something that you're able to see as we continue in our study today as well. As we continue looking at the life of Hannah, who has vowed to give this amazing gift, this unfathomable, priceless gift of her own son to the Lord, if the Lord should grant her a child. But that brings up a question of what we even have to give to God. What can you offer to God? What can you give to God? And and the fact that that is such an important question is revealed in the fact that every world religion tries to to give an answer to, to this question, what we should be offering unto God. Every world religion teaches that you must give something to God or, or to the gods or you know what have you based on whatever religion. But this is done as a means not only of receiving salvation in every other world religion according to, to their uh, doctrine, but it's done as a means also of appeasing the anger of the deity at hands. 
at hand. Many religions don't have a way of knowing if they're actually pleasing the gods. All they can really know is if they are appeasing His wrath uh, based on the fact that that they they continue living. Uh, But with Christianity, uh, we understand something very different than what you'll find in any other world religion. We understand that there is really nothing that we can offer unto God that He is worthy of. That's just how lowly we are. We have nothing of value to give unto the Lord. Nothing to give, nothing to offer unto God as a means of saving ourselves, at least. And this is the primary issue that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Uh, We believe that God is the one who must provide what He requires. And that He did just that as a means of saving us by sending the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to salvation, we have a vastly different answer than any other religion or ideology. But even apart from salvation, we have a very different answer than most world religions. Uh, We all know, or I hope that we would all know, that the New Testament never leaves us with the notion that we should give nothing unto God. Uh, So what or, uh, or how much are we to give back to him. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about tithing. Uh, I personally don't believe that the New Testament instructs us to tithe. That was a practice given to Israel, and there were three of them. Uh, But I don't believe that the New Testament instructs us to tithe. Uh, Of course, a tithe is a 10% offering. Uh, If that's what you want to give, that is perfectly fine. Some people are comfortable with that number. But ultimately, the New Testament instructs us that Our giving must be in accordance with our receiving, uh, and that it's not to be compulsory. Paul says this to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, if somebody is under compulsion, if somebody is manipulated into giving, they won't do so cheerfully. And if they don't do it cheerfully, guess what? God doesn't want it. And so, the churches that dim the lights and turn on the fog machines and talk about how, uh, you know, we're, we're blessed so that we can bless, and so we're going to pass the, the offering plate around a second time today. What are they doing? God's not pleased by compulsory giving, giving under compulsion. And this is one reason that you'll very, very rarely hear me ever even mention the subject of giving. Uh, Because I have no interest whatsoever uh, in compelling anyone to give. And nevertheless, I trust that the Lord will Uh, will provide. I trust wholeheartedly that the Lord will put it on your heart to give, uh, and and however much you give. I I know that He will provide. Uh, He always has. He always does. And if the day comes when He doesn't, if the day comes when, for whatever reason, uh, our light is extinguished, it's, it's His church. He can do whatever He wants with it. And I'm okay with that. But So therefore, there's no reason to play the manipulative games that I've seen churches play when it comes to giving. Nevertheless, the question is a good question. I think it's a valid question. What are we supposed to offer unto God? How much? 
And I think the answer will probably surprise you. That sounds really clickbaity, but the answer will surprise you. Uh, I'll just let the Scriptures speak for themselves on this one. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 uh, gives us the answer in irrefutable, uh, uncontestable, incontrovertible language. There Paul says, Therefore, Therefore tells us we need to look back and see what it's there for. And if we understand the context, he's already presented the gospel. So now he's talking to people who believe. And he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, again, these are people who are Christians, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And everything that flows out of... That is found in the verses that follow in Romans. He talks about what it looks like to present your bodies. He goes on to explain what Christian life looks like and how the gospel changes everything. And so in the verses that follow, he shows us what it looks like to offer our bodies or our lives, practically speaking. Everything flows out of this answer. The answer is you are not to hold on to anything when it comes to God. Your gifts, your talents, your wealth, all that you have isn't really yours. It's God's. Including, as Paul notes in this verse, your body, your very life, in other words. And so as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, we're going to be considering the work of the Lord that we see in Hannah We've seen that she was married to a man named Elkanah in the time of the judges, uh, and that because the Lord had prevented her from having children, Elkanah had taken on a second wife named Peninnah, who had bore, uh, bore many children for Elkanah. And not only that, but Peninnah wasn't the nicest person in the world, at least not toward Hannah. She had intentionally uh, tried to frustrate her and anger her, provoking her, uh, about the fact that Hannah was not having any children while Peninnah was. And it brought Hannah to tears at one point as she was down in Shiloh worshiping the Lord. And Hannah's response was to go to the tabernacle there in Shiloh and to pour her heart out before the Lord, asking that the Lord would open her womb and grant her Uh, the ability to have a child. Uh, Further, she vowed in that prayer, if you remember, she vowed before God that if He would grant her request, her child would live under the Nazarite vow in lifelong devotion and service unto God. And so when we left off, God had granted her request. He had given her a son whom she named Samuel. So today, as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel, we'll see that Hannah is faithful to this vow and that she exemplifies actually a lot of the qualities and characteristics that are still to be found in God's people. Because these qualities and these characteristics that we see in her are are still uh, qualities and characteristics that are pleasing unto God. But the point of our passage today is this. The point of our passage today is that because God has given us everything that we have, all that we have is to be used for God's glory. Because God has given us everything that we have, including our lives, including our next breath, everything is to be used for God's glory. So our story picks up with Hannah having given birth to Samuel. 
Let's look at verses 21 to 24. We read, Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. You know, one of the things that I love about this book is that we see very clearly that God is capable of doing good things and a lot of good things, big good things, with only a few faithful people, only a few faithful individuals. God can do more with a faithful few than you or I could do with multitudes and millions of people. God doesn't need much. He calls a few and does much with them. And while I think there's plenty of room to, to criticize Elkanah for the, the kind of husband he is, you know, he's got two wives, which, make no mistake about it, was, was extremely sinful. Uh, it definitely does not, um, you know, fit in with God's plan for marriage. Uh, it, it is definitely a case of adultery. Um, but, nevertheless, there is an abundance of evidence to support the notion that he loved and desired to serve and to honor the Lord. Now we can say right off the bat, we know he didn't do it perfectly, did he? But neither did any of us. Neither do we. So our passage begins a year after the beginning verses of the book uh, with Elkanah preparing to take his whole family. You see that in verse 21? Elkanah the man went up with all his household... That's an indication there of what kind of man he was. Our passage starts with Elkanah preparing to take his whole household, his whole family, back down to Shiloh to worship God, and the author tells us, to pay his vow. Now, we haven't read about Elkanah's vow, so we don't know exactly what that might be. Um, there's some speculation about what it is, uh, but we don't know for sure. Some commentators think that it's possible that he had made a vow to God regarding Hannah's barrenness as well, uh, vowing to give uh, you know, something above and beyond to God if God would grant Hannah a child. That, that's, that's possible, but again, we don't, we don't want to go into the, the area where we're saying that, that this is exactly what we know Elkanah's doing. We don't know. Uh, all we know, and the point that we're supposed to see, is that he's a faithful man. He's faithful to uh, the, the, the vows that he had made before the Lord at some point in the past, uh, you know, doing it now. He's faithful. And it's important for us to know this about Elkanah because we know that Hannah has also sworn a vow before the Lord. And so it tells us something about how Elkanah, as, as Hannah's husband, how Elkanah felt about anyone making vows unto the Lord, but in this case, specifically about his wife making a vow before the Lord. Elkanah clearly 
is a man who believes in following through on your vows, at least before the Lord. Now, contrary to how at least some people uh, take it, the Scriptures don't necessarily discourage us from making oaths and vows. Uh, Our confession, the the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, actually has a whole chapter on the subject of oaths and vows. And it tells us this in, in modern English. It says, A lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn to and judge, uh, and sworn to judge the one swearing accordance to the truth or falsity of it. End quote. So this summarizes the teachings that are found actually throughout Scripture on the subject of oaths and vows. Uh, for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, verses 4 to 6 says this. It says, when you make a vow to God, notice the assumption there, when, not if, but when, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now the implication there is very clear. It is sinful to swear an oath or a vow and then to renege on it, to back off on it. And the thing is, we've all seen people do stuff like that. We've all seen people who weren't entirely, at least, faithful to their promises. But the confusion about whether or not it's biblical seems to, uh, seems to stem from a misunderstanding about something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 to 37. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these uh, is of evil. Now what we need to understand is the context. We need to understand the type of people that Jesus was speaking to. He was speaking to people whose religious leaders would, in uh, just casual, regular conversation, make vows on the things that Jesus mentions here in this passage. Uh, Earth heaven and Jerusalem. Uh, so they wouldn't say, they, they wouldn't swear on, on God's name, but they would swear on earth or swear on heaven or Jerusalem, knowing that if they just swore on something less than God, uh, who cares if they aren't faithful to their words? So they could say, I swear on Jerusalem that this is true as sort of a a way or a means of sounding like they're serious and that uh, they've got some credibility and they're, they're being honest, but they couldn't be held accountable because they had made their vow either privately or on something less than God's name. So what Jesus was saying is that if you're going to make an oath or a vow, you'd better mean it. Don't use language to 
make a promise and, and sound serious and sound honest if you're not. If you're not serious and honest. Or as one commentator notes uh, of this passage in 1 Samuel, oaths and vows, quote, should not be entered into by those who are immature and do not have the means to carry out the intents of their hearts, end quote. Listen, friends, as a people who belong to a God who is truth, by virtue of His essence, it's part of who He is. He is truth. We should be truthful people. Uh, as people who belong to a God who is always faithful to His promises and to His covenants, we should not take oaths and vows casually or lightly. The Christian, for example, who's called to testify in court, that's one place where we see somebody swear an oath, right? Uh, you know, they'll, they'll be sworn in to, uh, to their testimony saying something like, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Uh, and then the moment that a person says, I do, they have said, so help me God, and so they'd better do it. And as Christians... We'd better be sure that if we're going to do this, that we understand and intend to uphold the weight of that vow or oath. Or, for example, another place that we see vows being exchanged is at a wedding, right? At a wedding ceremony. How seriously should we view those vows? Extremely seriously. You know, you know I, I so-and-so take thee so-and-so to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. That's the standard, the, the traditional Protestant wedding vow. And part of the absolute tragedy of the prolific rate of divorce within the modern church where our divorce rate looks just like the world's divorce rate, is that we, of all people, ought to be people who are faithful to our covenants, oaths, and vows. If we make such a promise, we'd better understand the weight of it, and we'd better follow through on it. Remember that you made those wedding vows. You exchanged those wedding vows not only before your friends and family, but you made it first and foremost before God Himself. And you will answer for that one day. Now that doesn't matter. That applies whether you're physically committing adultery or if you are just looking at stuff that you're not supposed to be looking at. If you are lusting for somebody other than your spouse, we understand that that's sinful. And that that is a violation of those vows that you have sworn before God. And if you consider what God tells us in Ecclesiastes 5, which I read just a moment ago, it's serious stuff. It's really serious stuff. Now, there's grace. Praise the Lord. There, there is grace. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. There's healing. And the Christian model of, uh, of how to handle infidelity or, or breaking vows is reconciliation. And I'm convinced that it can always be done. But it starts with understanding how serious those vows are. Reconciliation can't take place until the right view of those vows is recovered. 
Elkanah's faithfulness to pay his vow shows that he was a spiritually mature man, albeit, granted, a spiritually mature man who had some very obvious faults. But Hannah didn't go with him that year. Elkanah's taking everyone to Shiloh to worship, but Hannah doesn't go with him this year. And it seems evident that she had always gone in previous years, but this year Samuel has just been born and her desire is to wait until Samuel is weaned so that the next time that she goes to worship the Lord in Shiloh, she'll be able to do what she had vowed to do before God, to devote her son to serving the Lord all of his days in Shiloh. And Elkanah supports her vow. He supports her in the psalm vow. He says to her, do what seems right to you. Now there are two different ways of reading that. We might say, well, you know, maybe he's just kind of a reflection of the culture. Remember in the time of the judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king of Israel. So, so maybe you could read it that way or maybe you could just understand what he said as being him understanding the weightiness, uh, the, the seriousness of swearing a vow before the Lord. And I think the latter option, which is obviously the more charitable reading, is warranted here, uh, particularly since he himself, Elkanah himself, is going to pay a vow to the Lord also, uh, maybe for the same thing. But I think that most people would agree that, you know, we live in an age in which truth um, is denied altogether. People will say there's no such thing as, as truth. It's been forsaken by the culture around us as a concept. Uh, and one of the things that happens when truth isn't upheld, uh, when it isn't esteemed, when it isn't uh, valued, one of the things that happens is that people become less trustworthy. Uh, oh, I meant this or that when I said that. Or they'll just... Lose all the truth in the nuance. You ever see that happen? It happens all the time on social media. Everything gets lost in the nuance. You know, I had a, I had a, a guy who was, once upon a time, a, a good friend in seminary who exchanged marriage vows with a, with a kind, a, a lovely woman. The time came, however, when for, for whatever reason, and I, I still don't to this day understand exactly what happened or why he went the way that he went, he decided that this young woman wasn't really his soulmate. Now, the first huge red flag there was the fact that he would even use language like that because the term soulmate is not a biblical term you won't even find that concept in scripture that is nowhere to be found in christian uh, literature throughout the ages you, know, you won't find it in the bible so where does it come from well it's really kind of a new age concept there's no such thing as a soulmate but he was convinced that this woman wasn't his soulmate and before long, what do you think happened? He was unfaithful to her, repeatedly, and he filed for divorce. He's the one that filed for divorce. She was trying to reconcile with him. He filed for divorce. Now, he and I had a mutual friend who went to him and tried to, to reason with him, but he argued that because this woman wasn't his soulmate, their marriage vows were not binding. And all of this is to illustrate the fact that A, the vows that we make before God should be taken very seriously, and B, people will come up with all kinds of crazy 
maniacal excuses for getting out of vows that they swear before God. And that is a very dangerous thing to get in the habit of doing. And not surprisingly, around the same time, my friend dropped out of seminary before he was kicked out of seminary and became an apostate of the Christian faith. I say that it wasn't surprising because Christians should be people of their word. And I don't expect somebody who is unregenerate to care about the oaths and vows that they've sworn before God. And this man clearly was not a Christian. He became an apostate. And so it was no surprise that he was not a man of his word. He did not have any interest in upholding the vows that he had sworn before God. But we aren't left wondering if Hannah really intended to follow through on the vows that she had sworn before the Lord. We see in verse 24 that when Samuel was just three years old, he was weaned, and that Hannah took Samuel, a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a jug of wine down to the tabernacle in Shiloh, where she had made this solemn vow to the Lord. Now, four years later, remember, four years is, is three years of age and one year basically uh, from when uh, Elkanah went down to Shiloh here in the first few verses of this passage. Now, before we continue, I, I do want to point out that the theme of this first chapter seems to get lost on a lot of people. Some people are very confused by, uh, by what this, this chapter is trying to point us toward. Uh, This chapter does not make any kind of guarantee or indicate any kind of likelihood that if a woman is finding it difficult to get pregnant, all she needs to do is swear an oath before or vow before the Lord and he will grant her a child. If, If only it was so easy. That's a cruel misinterpretation of this passage. If you've ever known anyone who was struggling or who had difficulty getting pregnant, no, that is not That is absolutely not what this chapter is about. I mean, I have to imagine that Hannah wasn't the only one with a barren womb. Maybe there were other women who were praying the same thing, and their prayers weren't answered. We we just don't know either way. But our focus in this chapter isn't to be on Elkanah. Our focus in this chapter isn't to be on Hannah. We're supposed to see God. We're supposed to see that God is faithful to all of his promises and all of his purposes. As surely as God has blessed Hannah with a child, he has blessed Israel with Israel's new spiritual leader in Samuel. And it wasn't that they deserved it. It was in spite of the fact that they didn't deserve it. They had turned their backs on God as a nation. And yet God was faithful. That's what we are supposed to see. So if there's anything that we can take away from the text at hand, it's that this wasn't a perfect family, but it was a family that was devoted to worshiping and serving this God who was so faithful to Israel. In our times, we'd say that Elkanah and his family are, are church-going folks, right? Uh, they, they regularly went to Shiloh to worship. Why do you think they did that? Why did they, go, why did they make that, that journey every year? It's because God had required it of Israel. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5-7. to 7. It says, But 
you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. That's what the tabernacle was. And there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. That's why they go to Shiloh every year, because that's where the tabernacle was. They're being faithful to what God has instructed. We can be entirely confident that one of the reasons that Israel as a nation was spiritually barren is because the nation, by and large, had neglected to follow this commandment. And so what we need to understand is that once a group of people start to justify just one act of disobedience, they will justify even more disobedience. In fact, what we see playing out in the world around us today is that there's no end to it. They will justify one act of disobedience after another, after another. And where does it all end? It ends when God brings that nation crashing down. But the next thing you know, everyone is doing what seems right in their own eyes. And don't try to tell me that that's not what's happening in our country today. It's, it's exactly what we're seeing play out around us in the world today. A hundred years ago, most states had laws that were implemented on Sundays that weren't implemented on the other days of the week. And the reason was that most of the culture a hundred years ago recognized the value that the church had in a culture. They recognized the value of going to church and worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. What happens when a nation gives up Sundays and starts making them, not the Lord's day, but... Jim's day and Steve's day and Joe's day. What happens when Sunday becomes common in a nation? You end up right where we are today. And it didn't happen overnight. It was very gradual with football games suddenly being scheduled for Sunday mornings and Sunday being, you know, coming to be seen as a day to, uh, to get some extra work around the yard done or just a day of personal leisure rather than a day of rest and worship. And so before you knew it, Sunday evening service started to decline. Before you knew it, Sunday morning service started to decline before you knew it, the church in America started becoming less and less important and valued by the culture. Over the course of just my own life, my own generation, one of the more significant changes I've seen, and maybe it's just where I grew up, I don't know, is youth sports being scheduled for Sunday mornings. I mean, I grew up being very active in sports. I played baseball, I played basketball, I played soccer uh, very competitively for years. Uh, I, I did karate, I did judo, I did all this stuff. And everything was scheduled throughout the week. Saturdays were typically very, very busy, but nothing was scheduled for Sunday. And that was in Las Vegas, Sin City, even there, it was recognized that Sundays are sacred. And that is simply no longer the case. And, and again, maybe it was just where I grew up, but I don't look at Vegas as being a godly example you know, that, that everybody else is, is following. 
But Sunday was chipped away at very gradually over the course of just a couple generations. Elkanah and his family remind us that whatever the culture is doing on the day that the Lord has designated for worship, we are to worship. We aren't to follow the culture's lead. Now to be clear, if you're in Christ, the law no longer condemns you. So, so I'm, not being, I'm not enforcing the law on you. We're not under the law as a means of, uh, of condemnation. Nevertheless, the law does still have a place in our life in that it teaches us how to live a life that's pleasing unto God. Now, how many commandments are there which teach us how to live a life that's pleasing unto God? Nine, right? No. Is one of them obsolete because it wasn't mentioned in the New Testament? That's what people say about uh, the commandment to observe the Sabbath. They'll say, oh, that was never, never repeated in the New Testament, so it's not binding. Really, so was the first commandment. That wasn't repeated in the New Testament either. Is that one still binding? Yeah, it is. In fact, there were, there were only seven commandments that were repeated in the New Testament. But the one that everybody wants to do away with is the command to observe the Sabbath, which we refer to now as the Lord's Day. In the Old Testament, we see that this pattern was established uh, in uh, or by the order of the creation of the heavens and the earth. The day of worship, therefore, fell on a Saturday. But in the New Testament, we look back on the pattern that was instituted in the new creation, which is greater and more significant uh, as an event, even more than, than the creation of the heavens and the earth. The new creation began with Christ raising from the grave victorious over sin and death, which happened to fall on which day? Sunday. And so now the designated day of worship is Sunday. And I'm sure that when Jordan does his, uh, his sermon on observing the Sabbath, we'll, we'll talk more about these things. We'll hear more about these things. But what happens when a nation turns Sunday into just another day rather than using it as a day to worship the Lord? J.C. Ryle says this, he says, quote, The Sabbath is God's merciful appointment for the common benefit of all mankind. It was made for man, Mark 2.27. It was given for the good of all classes, for the laity quite as much as for the clergy. It is not a yoke, but a blessing. It is not a burden, but a mercy. It is not a hard, wearisome requirement, but a mighty public benefit. It is not an ordinance which man is bid to use in faith without knowing why he uses it. It is one which carries with it its own reward. It is, uh, it is good for man's body and mind. It is good for nations. Above all, it is good for souls. End quote. So it's still an important commandment. Now, God is worthy of our praise and our, and our worship every day, of course. Nobody's disputing that. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. He's more worthy than anything that might be playing on television. No matter who the Seahawks are playing on Sunday mornings, He's more important. He's more important than any activity that would distract us from praising and worshiping Him in the manner that He has instructed. So it's no wonder that God uses Elkanah's marriage to Hannah in such a mighty and magnificent way. 
because they are a family that is continuing to observe the Lord's instructions. Their home wasn't a perfect home. We get it. That's good news, right? Because there are no perfect homes. Not on this side of glory. Their home was not a perfect home, but it was a God-honoring home. And it's thus fitting that it would be the home out of which Israel's next spiritual leader would come. Let's continue. Verses 25 to 28. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So the bull was sacrificed unto the Lord. And of course, if you understand the culture there, you understand that the bull would have been a very costly sacrifice to make. And the boy, Samuel, was brought to Eli, the priest at the tabernacle in Shiloh. Now notice that she had only vowed to give her son in devotion to the Lord, and yet she and Elkanah go well above and beyond just giving their son to the Lord. You might say, wow, you brought all this other extra stuff, the, the bowl, the, the ephah of flour, the jug of wine. Isn't that going a little bit overboard? But we have to understand that their desire was to bless the Lord in accordance, in proportion to the way that He had blessed them. And so with that in mind, the question that we have to be asking ourselves is, is there anything too great to give unto the Lord? They were only giving God back a portion of what He had abundantly, abundantly blessed them with. And so approaching Eli, Hannah reminds him of who she is and what she and and, and he had prayed for on that day four years prior. She informs him that the prayer was answered, that God had given her a child named Samuel. And she says to Eli, I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And then we read this about Samuel, this three-year-old little boy. And he worshiped the Lord there. This three-year-old boy worshiped the Lord How fascinating is that? How fascinating, how how interesting is it to see that he he knew that that was what he was supposed to do there. He, He knew what it meant to worship God. How did Samuel know what it meant to worship God? Because he'd come from a godly house where they probably did family worship. He had been raised to know the Lord. And so, when he arrives in Shiloh, he knows what it means to worship. Now, I've told people about how we're a family-integrated church, which is very unlike most churches. We want our kids in here with us. We recognize that, uh, that being in the sanctuary is a vital step in the discipleship process, and we want our kids to be disciples. That's, that's, that's our desire for them. But you would be amazed 
at how much pushback I've received from some people, even from pastors. One pastor got really angry with me last week when I posted something uh, about not outsourcing your parental responsibilities uh, by having them you know, go off to nursery or kids' church or something while you're in the sanctuary listening to a sermon. But even pastors, uh, they, they see nothing wrong with parents just completely you know, outsourcing that responsibility, foregoing their responsibility to disciple their children in the sanctuary. And the thing is, what I'm convinced of is that we hold the bar far too low for our kids. We see what's normal in most churches where, you know, there's kids' church or where there's nursery or whatever, and we think, well, you know, he, he, he or she isn't really going to be able to follow along with the sermon anyway. Really? Really? No. Uh, we know from experience that they do. You should see some of the notes, the sermon notes, that have been left behind by some of the kids here. They are listening to everything. They understand what is going on. My first sermon in John, five years ago, uh, the, the rhetorical question I asked was, who is Jesus to you? And a five-year-old kid in the back, right back there where Kurt's sitting, shouted out, he's God. He's listening. He understood we hold the bar way too low for our kids. You and I both know that while it's true that they sometimes have a little bit of trouble sitting through service, they are nevertheless listening. The kids who are brought up in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings have no problem, even at three years of age, knowing what's expected of them and following along with a sermon, even a 50-minute sermon like what I preach. But this is one of the places that they learn to worship God. And it's where the Bible says they should be. They should be with their parents. And how beautiful is it to hear the sound of disciples being made and taught here in the sanctuary. I, I, I hope you don't find it distracting. I don't find it distracting. I find it beautiful, not to mention biblical. Uh, a, a parent uh, should know that their kid is not going to prevent God's Word from going forth in power and from God's Word being preached from doing the work of God in those who hear it. A kid's voice isn't going to interfere with that. As we saw in, uh, in, in a, uh, uh, an article that I posted just a few days ago, that if a kid's voice in the middle of a sermon is going to interfere with God's work going on, boy, we're in a lot of trouble. But what a great way for this first chapter to end with Israel's next spiritual leader worshiping God at three years old. This was Hannah's desire. This was her ambition all along. And these are godly desires and ambitions. How many of you, by the way, uh, who are raising boys, how many of you are raising your boys with the idea that they too will grow up to be the spiritual head of their household? But they will grow up to be shepherds and priests of their own households. God has ordained that the husband would be the spiritual leader of the home, and that alone is reason enough for us to be sure that we are raising our boys and girls to know the Lord. 
But let's consider the consequences of that, or rather the fruit that's born when that is actually done, when that's followed. Uh, There's a graph that was in Leadership Magazine that I saw this past week that showed when dad is the spiritual leader of the home, taking the family to church, and actually living out the Christian life in front of his kids, 93% of the time, his kids follow suit. 93% of the time. That is huge. Is it worth it? Now, I'm not talking about being pragmatic. I'm not saying that we want to do this just because that's what works. We want to do it because that's the way that God has ordered the family institution. But we should see that God's ways really are the best. So my prayer is that your desire would be the same as Hannah's desire. That you would desire your children to know and worship the Lord. That you would dedicate your children to the Lord. And so let's be very, very careful and intentional about not steering our kids onto worldly pathways that will lead them to either uh, inadequate views of God or will lead them to abandon their faith eventually. Moms, how difficult do you think it would be to do what Hannah has done here? And to bring your son to the temple and just say, the Lord be with you, Samuel. How difficult do you think that would be? I, I, it, it's almost unbelievable. It's, it's hard for me to imagine how difficult it would be. In our minds, it probably feels like it would just be absolutely impossible. But there are some good lessons that relate to giving back to the Lord. And I, and I want to touch on them very briefly that we see here in, in Hannah and Elkanah. First of all, we, we have to understand that everything that we have was given to us by the Lord. Whatever you have, God has entrusted you with it. Everything. John the Baptist rightly says in John chapter 3, verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Not some things. He can only receive a few things. Nothing. So whatever you have, God has given it to you. The only reason that Hannah has Samuel is because God has granted Samuel to her, right? The same goes for us and, and for our children. But it goes beyond just our children, and it extends to everything that we have. It extends to our jobs. It extends to our wealth. It extends to our families, our homes, our cars, our talents, whatever, every breath. Everything that we have, we are to steward them wisely because they are God's. When we give to the Lord, it is a way of reminding ourselves that nothing that we possess is actually our own. By giving God the first portion, uh, it's a way of reminding ourselves that the whole belongs to Him. So that's the first principle. Everything that we have is from God. And we're to be stewards of those things. Secondly, what we see here is that giving isn't always easy. Giving isn't always painless. Sometimes it takes great effort. Sometimes it takes great preparation. I've I've had people tell me, you know, hey, I I, I love your ministry. I want to support your ministry. But I've got so much debt right now. I've got to pay off my debt first. 
And my standard response is to remind somebody that, hey, what you give to, to the church is between you and the Lord. I, I don't even look at the finances. I don't know who gives what. I have no idea, and that's the way I like it to be. But at the same time, okay, if, if you've got debt and you want to prepare to give, that's wise. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is good and wise to do. Clear the way by removing debt. Clear the way by simplifying your life. Clear the way by looking at what you're spending money on and taking out things that aren't necessary. In Richard Phillips's words, quote, Mature and serious Christians like Hannah realize that few things of real value can be offered to God without extensive preparation and effort. So that's the second principle. First, God, uh, God owns everything. Everything we have is God. Secondly, uh, giving can sometimes be painful. Sometimes giving requires a lot of preparation. Third, understand that the only basis that we can come to God and give anything is by His grace and by His mercy. Notice that the first thing that happens here is that they slaughter the bull. Of course, that meant that the blood of the bull was spilled before Samuel was presented. The spilling of the blood was a reminder that the wage of sin is death, and that before they could offer Samuel to the Lord, they needed to be cleansed of their sin. Now, of course, we know that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin, but these were foreshadows ordained by God to remind us that sin had consequences and that the day was coming when God would send a spotless lamb to take away the sin of all of God's people. The fact that Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins reminds us that the wage of sin is death, and that God takes sin very seriously. If God didn't take sin seriously, He would not have sent His only Son to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, and to die a painful sinner's death in the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And through the shedding of His blood, sinners would be cleansed. If God didn't take sin seriously, if He could just give a wink and a smile to sin, He would have, but no. The wage of sin is death. Friends, just like Hannah offered her son to the Lord to be devoted unto the Lord's service all of his days, so too you and I must see that the only appropriate to having received God's grace upon ourselves is to present ourselves as living sacrifices for the glory, honor, and service of Him who ransomed us from hell with His own blood to the praise of His glorious grace. He's worthy of it all. God does not just want your Sunday mornings. He wants your whole life, which He gave you to steward for His glory and which He purchased with the shed blood of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so I'm here to encourage you today to present your whole life and lose it for the glory of God. God has given us everything that we have, and all that we have is to be used for his glory. Praise the Lord. We do not belong to ourselves. The quickest way to make a mess of your life is to live as if you do as if you do belong to yourself. But no, God's gifts are best used when they are devoted back to Him with thanksgiving, gratefulness, 
faithfulness and a humble desire to acknowledge that He's worthy of it all. Let's pray. Our most merciful God, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way that Your Word instructs us and guides us. The way that it tells us about what pleases You and what doesn't please You. Father, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit working within us, that our greatest desire would be to live a life that's pleasing to You. We acknowledge before You that while it's not easy for us to say, we know that everything that we have is Yours. And so we pray, God, that You would give us the conviction to use everything that we have to glorify Christ who shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray, Lord, that You would teach us to be a faithful people. To be a faithful people who are are generous in giving ultimately back to You. Because You not only own it all, but You deserve everything. So God, we pray that You would use the text that we've looked at today to shape us, to mold us in Christ's likeness, who gave everything in order to redeem us. Teach us, O Lord, to give everything that we have unto You with thankful, grateful hearts, and that Christ would be glorified in that. In His name we pray. Amen.